Let's read that together. Galatians 3, starting in verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Let me pray once again. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father, for this word, words of life, words that are refreshing. Lord, I thank you so much that you have revealed yourself and you revealed your plan in these words, and these words will give us life because of your Son. So I pray that it would be a time in which our eyes are opened, our minds are enlightened, our hearts are encouraged. Do that this morning for your namesake alone. Amen. It was the year 1947. It was the year that India changed forever. Very few Americans know this, especially those of my generation. But 1947 was the year that India was granted independence from the British Empire. Now it was just a mere 70 years ago. Yet the thing is, is that they should have never been granted independence in the first place from Great Britain. It was in the early 19th century that Great Britain came into the free and peaceful land of what at that time was known as Hindustan, wanting to do trade with them. And they came in there and thought, hey, you guys need to be civilized. You don't look like us, you don't act like us, you don't think like us, so we're just going to come over here and help you guys to do that. Uh, because you guys are not doing that well. And so they tricked them into becoming a colony underneath their commonwealth. And they were under their, the, the British commonwealth for about a century, paying taxes, being ruled by a foreign power, supposedly for their own good. But the people wanted to be free. So they called for their independence in what was a first of its kind and now often replicated, a peaceful resistance. But their independence wasn't anything like peace because it wasn't a normal separation from the British Empire. What the people of India and the British, uh, British officials both agreed to was to divide the land of Hindustan into two separate countries, what we now know as Pakistan and India. And they separated the Hindus from the Muslims, a group, uh, two people groups that were once united living relatively peaceful together for hundreds of years, were now being forced to part ways with each other. And on that faithful, fateful day of independence, the violence started, known as one of the darkest weeks in the history of India. 
Hindus began killing Muslims and taking their land. And in revenge, the Muslims responded by running into Pakistan and killing Hindus and taking their land. Many, many atrocities that I could continue on listing here this morning that happened across these two amateur countries now, hardly a few days old, that almost two million people lost their lives in a span of just a few days. And over 10 million became displaced aliens now in a foreign country. Well, what started out so horribly has grown into something beautiful. Businesses has flourished. It's become one of the largest, actually the largest democracy on earth. The military is strong and defensible. Economy is growing. In fact, I was talking to someone the other day and they were asking me if I drove a car over there in India. I said, yeah. And they said, what kind is it? I said, it's a Maruti car. Maruti, what is that? I said, it's one of the Indian brands. Indians make their own cars, really? I'm like, yeah. (laughs) They are a successful people. They're not, you know, still living back in the 18th century like maybe some people think that they are, but they are a beautiful people. And we shouldn't discount the Indian people. I mean, many of the CEOs of some of the top top companies in the world today, the, the CEO of Google, CEO of Microsoft, the CEO of PepsiCo, they're all from India. Sure, they, they have their problems like every other country on God's good earth does, but they're a wonderful people. A people that have been set free after decades of bondage under European governments. And they responded well. All because of that violent day in 1947 that changed everything. Now, just like the day that set the Indian people free changed them forever, giving them a new identity, giving them a new future, Jesus did that for us, for law-breaking transgressors like you and like me. And this changed us forever. changed the world eternally. Mankind was created as a free people, yet our first parents were tricked by the evil one and fooled by their own desires and it plunged the entire human race into bondage. Then there was that fateful day when the innocent, law-keeping Son of God was falsely put to death on a cross, absorbing the full wrath of God that was meant for us. It was a day of violent, corruptible atrocities against Jesus. Yet our Messiah responded with love and with a purposeful plan to save sinners. And he rose three days later victorious over sin and over death. And with faith in the righteousness of Christ, we have become a free people now. Once again, no longer imprisoned by law or by sin. And this is the point that God is drawing us to in this section of Galatians, that we are now a freed people no longer under law. You know, at this point in the letter of Galatians, some of us may be starting to think this is getting a bit repetitive. We're thinking, okay, yeah, we understand that good works, we've got no bearing on our salvation, it's all Christ alone, it's through faith alone, for God's glory alone, we know that, let's, come on, let's move on to deeper stuff. Getting tired of this, Paul, let's move it on. 
But Paul's not satisfied with simplistic answers, pat responses to such serious and deadly thinking. And neither should we. It's been good for my soul to be engaged in this letter, and so I'm glad that Paul is beating this proverbial dead horse to a pulp. Because it's too damaging for us if this isn't the case. See, since the start of chapter 3, we've been hearing how insufficient the law and good works is for us. It truly is through faith in Christ that we are the offspring of Abraham, not by doing the Jewish ceremonies. And there, in, in just the two verses previously, in verses 21 and 22 of chapter 3, there's this question that all of us have been thinking, well, what's the point of the law then if it doesn't do anything for us? If it's completely antithetical to the promises of God, which is supposed to be through faith. If it's always been about faith, then why was the law even there in the first place? Well, we get the answer now in verse 23 and verse 24. Look at it to begin together again. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So what was the law's purpose? It was to be our tutor, a strict tutor who leads us to Christ. Now depending upon the translation that's sitting in your lap, you either have it saying that it's the law was our guardian until Christ came, or some of your translations say that it was to guard us, to be our guide to Christ. And I think that the latter option reads better in the flow of the passage. That this is a, he was supposed to be a guide, a tutor, that leads us straight to Christ when he is revealed on that day. And this is not the first example that illustrates the law. There in Romans, our law, the law was our former husband. But now through faith, we have died to the law and free to remarry. And we have been married now to Christ. And here in Galatians 3.24, the law is depicted as a strict disciplinarian. The law treated us like a young, rich, spoiled brat who needed someone in the house to train him to be honored and respected member of the family. So under the law, we were not free. The Old Testament believer had to be put under the law because the fullness of faith had not yet been fully revealed. Now look at verse 25, the best news in the world. But now that faith has come, we are no longer, we're no longer under this guardian. But now that faith has come. It's totally changed the game. It's my favorite word in all the, in all the Bible, the word but. I know kids snicker when I say that, but it's my favorite word. But God it signals that there's a good news that's about to take place right after the bad news had just been, been reported. The perfect revelation has just come at last. The object of faith has come. Jesus Christ himself. This is world-changing. Three times in these verses, the author says to the effect, before faith came or before Christ came, this is how it was, and now it has come. The Messiah has finally been revealed. 
the one Adam needed in the garden, the one Noah couldn't be after the flood, the one Abraham was promised long ago in Ur, the one Moses wandered around for and waited for, the one David fought for, the one Solomon fell way short of, the one dozens of prophets foretold of, the one many contemporaries rejected. Christ came and changed everything. We're no longer under the tutor of the law because we have Christ. How refreshing. Just as Mr. Lansdowne prayed this morning that we would be refreshed by the Word of God this morning. This is refreshing. We're no longer under this law. We're under Christ. This is rest for our weary souls. This is why Jesus said, Come you who are weary and heavy laden. Because that's what the law was. It was burdensome. And Christ is free. And see what the result is, the last half of the verse. Verse 25. It's our justification. That's the result. It's our justification. This, our sins now are forgiven. Our hearts are clean. Notice what the end of the verse says. The law was never meant to justify us. We were to be justified through faith. Because we have Christ, this has freed us from the requirements of the law. The law is no longer a curse to us. You know, when I was first reading through these verses, when I was doing a study a few weeks ago, kept being reminded of Julie, Julie Andrews' role in The Sound of Music, Mary Poppins. You all remember those movies? Both those movies are, are pretty much the same. You know, she is the, uh, the nanny or the governess that goes into this uh, rebellious house where the kids are just rambunctious, uh, don't want to follow the rules of the house. Uh, all the other former governors, that's all they did, that's all they cared about was making sure that these kids would follow the rules of the house. But then Julie Andrews' character would come in there, not really talk about the rules, but because of her attitude, because of her cheerfulness, because she made the rules fun, I guess, but then the kids now forgot about the rules. But they were following it. They were following the rules without even thinking about it, because it was life to them now. It was joy to them now. And in a small way, this is Christ. We have Christ now. And it's a joy now to follow after Christ and to live in obedience. It's not some burden, something we have to do. We have to be checking all of our dots to make sure that we're there. Christ did that for us. And now we get to walk beautifully behind him who did it already for us. Are you still living under this law? Under this tutor? Trying to make yourself look good to God? Maybe that's you here this morning. The Bible speaks very plainly. There's no doubt. There's no ambiguity that this is poison if you want to try to justify yourself according to the law. There's a better way for you. It's Jesus. I'm pleading with you. Don't make the biggest mistake of your life by thinking that you can be somehow good enough for God. It's too late. It's way too late. You've already broken the commands. But you know what? There's one who already did. It's Jesus. He never broke a single law. And now he offers his life for yours. Will you take it? Will you give up 
everything and humble yourself and give it up to Jesus. He says very clearly in in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 3, now it is evident that no one is justified before before God by the law. For the, the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Trust me. You don't want to live by that standard. You might be a great person, most likely way better than me, but you're not good enough for God. You will never completely obey the law. You know the old saying that if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword? It's basically what God is saying here. If you want to live by the law, you're going to die by the law. But if you exchange your life for Christ, it's life. If you have Christ, if you have faith in Christ and you have his righteousness in you, you are good enough for God. And you are complete and you are perfect in him. And then there may be many of you who are more like me. Well, I've given my life to Christ. I still find myself thinking and acting like I should be under that old tutor. What makes us believe that? What makes us think that we should live life under the old tutor? What, would it, what does it look like, I guess, is the better question. What does it even look like when I say to live life under the tutor of the law? Well, let me give you some examples. When you sin, you think that you, God is disappointed in you and you must do better in your striving after holiness without even taking a lick to think about Christ and how he did it for you. I caught this in my own life just this last week. I went camping uh, with my entire family at Canopolis Lake and I was, I was pretty prideful in some areas and some actions in my life at how great of a father I was and how great of a husband I am. I'm so much better than my, my brother-in-laws and I'm so much better than everybody else around here. And then the Spirit started to poke me about this pride. Then I get frustrated. I'm like, oh, man, I'm such an idiot. I'm not as holy as I want to be. And I just am so frustrated that I made myself a God again. And I cry out to God to make me holy. Now, while that's commendable, sure. Yet what I was disappointed, I was disappointed that I wasn't righteous according to the law. And I wanted to be. And I forgot that Christ did it for me. And now it's a joy now to follow after this law. And I get to look at him who did it for me. And I humble myself under him. Another way in which we try to be a tutor, or try to live under this tutor, is when we, when we repent, we are only sorry that we broke the law. That we weren't as perfect as we thought we were. Not that you again went back into old idols that you once served and what Christ saved you from. Or you, you act like you're under the tutor when you focus so much on the law and neglect the weightier matters. Well, what does that look like then when I say the weightier matters? Well, have you ever thought, well, you know, I shouldn't spend time with these neighbors because they're a little out there and... It just might not be too wise for me to spend time with them. 
You know, it might affect my holiness if I'm going and hanging out with these guys. Are you focusing more on your own obedience to the law, making sure you aren't corrupted by them, rather than the weightier matters of the law, which are love and mercy and grace, going out and making disciples, getting dirty, going out into the, being a sheep among wolves, that's who we are. We're sheep among wolves. We think that we should go be as sheep. We should hide underneath a shelter and not go anywhere near a wolf. We go out there we put ourselves out there knowing that God will defend. He will make us holy. It's not up to us. God will make us holy. Do you find yourself like me in these situations? Are you tempted to move back to the old tutor and imprison yourself once again to the law? So how do we get out of this? Well, that's what the Lord wants to show us this morning in this passage. When you get into these moments of loving that old tutor, the Lord gives you reasons why that should seem ridiculous to you. That's why in your notes you have, if you have that in your bulletin, four revolutionary identities that Christ changed in you that makes you free. First, you have the fill in the blanks. You must see that you are no longer, the, no longer under the guardian of the law because you are sons through Christ. You are sons through Christ. This is coming from verse 26. For, or you can also say because, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So our Father tells us clearly that it's because of our adoption as sons and as daughters this, no longer, this, this law is no longer a guardian to us. It's no longer keeping us imprisoned. We are his son. We're no longer his slave, imprisoned to him. The law or our good works or our being good enough could never give us adoption. It's only through faith. You might say, big deal. I know I'm a child of God. I, I grew up hearing that I'm a child of God and I'm a son of God. What is there really to get so excited about? Oh, my dear friend, you have not looked at this very clearly. Think about your state apart from Christ. In your rebellion, you have slapped God in the face and are deserving of divine anger and wrath upon your life. You may be thinking, come on, dude, I haven't done anything that bad. Those guys out there, those are the bad ones. I'm, I'm a good you know, church going. I'm going to church. I got my, my good Sunday best on. I'm not that bad. Sorry to inform you, but we're all that bad. I'm bad. You're bad. We're all bad. You say, how can you say this? You don't know me, bro. You don't know me. How can you keep saying this to me? Well, because of what someone else asked Jesus. There was a man who asked Jesus to summarize the whole massive law, all 613 commandments from the Old Testament, and say, can you just summarize them in just a, into a nutshell for me so that I can just do this a lot more simpler? And Jesus' response was, okay, I'll, I'll give you two. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Do that all the time. So, how are you doing in that area? <laughs> That's what I'm saying, that we're all bad. 
Because unless you've done that all the time perfectly, we've fallen in those commands. That's how I can say that you can't do this. So we got no hope. There's nothing that we can do to pay back what our sin has deserved until Jesus, the Savior, appeared. Glorious and graceful He appeared and lived a life that we couldn't live in order to die a death that we could never die. Only to rise again and offer His life to you and me. That's why adoption is so dear to us. We'd have no hope we have no hope apart from Christ, apart from this adoption. One other magnificent aspect of this adoption is it shows the deep love of our Father. See, in ancient times, adoption isn't sort of like how it is now. In adoption, they would look at the young adults, some of the teenagers, that's who they would adopt, and say, okay, is this a fine specimen of a human to be able to carry on my lineage? Because he's going to hold my family name, so he better be in tip-top, pristine shape, have good genes, then, only then, would I adopt him. It would be a strict, careful screening process to see if they could be worthy of this family. But oh, how is this in direct contrast to how God adopted us. It was when we were weak, when we were sinners, when we were ungodly, when we were enemies of him, that our Father made us sons and daughters. Wow! That's amazing grace. Just think of a, of a modern couple's a decision to adopt. The adoption, and when they bring the child home, that's not, that's not the end of the adoption process, is it? When a couple brings this child home, they don't expect him to now try to earn their keep and be worthy of their adoption. You have some adoptive parents in here. I wouldn't expect that you guys say, okay, well now you're adopted, now you better work to earn your keep here. Earn your adoption now. Earn my love. These other ones who have been naturally born, they are naturally mine, so naturally I would love them. No, of course not. You bend over backwards to show you love them. You seek to gain the child's affection. And the same with God's love for us. For eternity, He will continue to show His love for you. Every day, He's pouring out and showing, showing, you are my son, you are my daughter, and I want you to know that. I love you. You must stop thinking that if you just stay holy, do some good deeds, be a good husband, be a good wife, be a good father, a mother, be a good employee, be a good neighbor, then God will finally be happy and pleased to keep me into His family. Oh, how many foolish days I've spent thinking that way. No. The, no. the law is no longer binding on us. We are set free from that because we are His beloved children. And as sons and daughters, now it's a joy for us to obey and to be like Jesus, to sacrifice, to serve. Oh, Crestview, that you would know the glory and the freedom in your adoption. And Phil will flesh this out. He, he can, Paul continues in chapter 4 about our adoption, but as we continue on, we'll see that you are no longer under law because you are sons through Christ. And secondly, you are no under, law, under the law because you have put on Christ. You have put on Christ. Verse 27, 
for or again because, because as many of you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We don't need the law as a guardian anymore because you are clothed with Christ. It's just natural now. Because of Christ living in you, you don't need the law to imprison you. You have been united with him through faith and there's nothing else that's required. You're free. That's what our baptism has done for us. It symbolically shows that we have put on Christ. Don't see this now as baptism replacing circumcision because that would just destroy everything that this letter has been talking about. If you just say, okay, well, if you just be baptized, then everything will be all good. No, he's been trying to argue this is guts out to say, no, it's only through faith. So if you say faith and then also baptism, well, then that just it destroys the whole argument. So then why mention baptism? Because if you've been, baptism, if you've been baptized, then this is telling you that you have Christ. You are obeying the command of Jesus to be united with him in baptism by faith. In other words, verse 27 could read like this. You who have taken baptism should know more than anyone else that you don't need the law as a guardian because you have something better at work in you. Jesus! So why go crawling back to that? Christ lives in you. You must know what baptism would mean in a place like Galatia or even today in most places of the world outside the West. Because here in America, baptism has become some optional ordinance that we put in the church with little or no consequence. You can get baptized, you cannot get baptized, whatever. Okay, let's get baptized. What's the big deal? But in much of the world, baptism, it's like drawing a line in the sand. It's a huge deal. The society and the culture at large, Christian and non-Christian, sees it for what it is, as a changing of allegiances. In a place such as as in India, You can declare yourself to be a Christian. You can say, I convert to Christianity, I trust Christ. But many people, they don't really take you seriously. Then there are some who who say, well, even if if I take you seriously, there's still time for you to change your mind, for you to come back to your old faith, to your other religion, to your false religion. But once they take baptism, the community at large, the culture at large, they think it's too late the new believer will now be ostracized of the community and become an outcast. That is the deciding factor for them. I've met personally with people to whom this has happened to. They've been, they've been taken out of the community because, strictly because of their baptism. And the church had to rally behind them. I know of pastors who would plead with hesitant new converts to take baptism who are, just, who are afraid of the consequences. So when we hear verse 27 say, Look, you who have taken baptism, you have shown that you are tied with Christ. We see it for what it is. It's where our allegiance lies. Not with the law, but our allegiance lies with Christ now. There's no need to show even more proof by obeying the law. You have Him. You don't need the other things. And unlike the normative way of this phrase to put on Christ, it's usually a command. Here it's used as a description of them. They have been clothed with Christ. It's, it's comforting to them. You have Christ in you. You have put on him. 
So what does it look like then to be clothed with Christ? Remember how our salvation was described back in chapter 3, verses 3 through 5? Or even in verse 14 of chapter 3? Did you not receive the Spirit? It's the Holy Spirit. He doesn't refer to baptism in those, in, those, in those verses. He doesn't say, well, you who have received baptism, did you do that by works of the law or by obedience with faith? No. He said, you who have received the Spirit. They are clothed with Christ by the person of the Holy Spirit. And I echo Vivek's words from a couple of weeks ago that many times we devalue the importance of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So how does that affect you, knowing that you have been clothed with Christ by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit living in you? Well, many of us know that the Spirit is there to convict us of sin. I think that that's one of the biggest things that we say, okay, yeah, the Spirit is there to convict us of sin. But do you know what John 15, 26, 16, verse 14, what Jesus tells his disciples there, what the purpose is? of sending the Holy Spirit is, Jesus sends the Spirit in order to testify and to witness about Him. Not to witness about the the sins in your life, but to witness about Jesus taking those sins away. 1 John chapter 4, verse 2 and 3 says the Holy Spirit is there to confess Christ to you. Yes, He will bring conviction of sin. That's a part of it. But he will magnify Christ in your life. When the law is your guardian, it will just continue to declare to you how you have broken the law and how you have to do better. But the Spirit tells you, you can't do better, but Jesus did it for you, so now live in light of this resurrection and power of sin over you. The Spirit tells you, you are united in Christ. All victory is yours through him. You have victory over this sin. It's Him. You don't have to go back to it. You're not enslaved to it anymore. Now, with all this freedom talk, you may be thinking that we are just free from all obedience. Oh, to the contrary. To the contrary. 1 Peter 2, verse 16 says it so perfectly. Live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Just because we're freed from the law doesn't mean that we get to continue in sin. No, we have put on Christ instead of the law, which means that you will live like Christ. The massive difference is that it's no longer a burden for us to try to keep anymore. It's natural. It's, It's our clothes since the Spirit has been clothed in us. Crestview, if you're living by faith, if you have put on Christ, live with Him as your guardian and not the law. And then a third life-changing identity that Christ gave you is that you are now no no longer under the guardian of the law because you are united in Christ. Verse 28 you are united in Christ. 
There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. Because you are all one in Christ Jesus. And I know that there's a lot of hijacking of this verse by organizations who like to take this verse and take it out of context, using it to prove their own agenda, their ideological and their political agenda. But let's not make the same mistake here, and let's look at it in light of the context, in light of the argument that the author is making. So far in this section, Paul is trying to prove that we are no longer under the guardian of the law, which separates. It separates Jew from Gentile. It separates male from female. It separates slave from free. But now, because of our baptism, which is the previous verse, we have been initiated into this new community. The community of the church where old laws would have separated us. Under the law, we would have had to distinguish between these things. There was some in those days, in the Jewish law, who would pride themselves as being a Jewish free male. And they would pray and they would say, Thank you, God, for making me a Jewish free male, as now I am prized under the law. They have the perfect trifecta. But see, sin has messed up these relationships. Racism and pride disrupt our beautiful diversity. Greed has divided between material blessings. And lust has destroyed our sexuality. But in Christ, we no longer need to be separated along those lines. We truly are one in Christ. So does this mean that we just muddle the line between these, as some want us to believe? Well, let me be clear at what I'm saying. Christ is not advocating that you are no longer these things. It's that those things have no bearing on your salvation any longer. It's those things which used to. Please don't hear Jesus is telling you to give up your diversity, to give up your economy, to give up your gender. He's not saying these things. And he's not saying these don't matter at all. But we don't draw the line of separation anymore. We are free to these things and free to live together as one without division. You know, a couple of examples of what this looks like. We as Americans, we pride ourselves as the unity of our diversity, don't we? And there's some truth to this. There is some truth to this. We've, we've traveled, me and my wife have traveled extensively across many different countries, and we've gone to several Southeast Asian countries. And you can really, when we go and we have to check in immigration, there's usually two lines of immigration. There's the foreigners line, and there's the national line. And when you go to one of these countries, you don't have to read the sign. Everybody in the national line looks exactly the same, and everybody in the foreigner line is completely different. All have different races and nationalities and everything, and you, just, you, you don't even have to read the sign. Okay, I'll just follow where everybody looks different. That's where I'm going. But then when we come into the U.S., we have to read the signs. Because you can't tell the difference between the line that says foreigner and the one that says national. And I think that's great. I think that's awesome. I think that's wonderful that here in this country we have such a diversity and we can live like that under that diversity. But in other areas, India has crossed these lines. For, an ex- for example, like in, there's the thing in zoning in the U.S. 
right? Certain, certain neighborhoods, you have to have a certain um, economical status, if you will. You have to, the homes have to be of a certain value. You can't just come in there and put up a shack in these neighborhoods. Some poor person has to go to a different part of town to live there. Different rates, different rental prices, different property prices. So we've segregated these parts in our town. We said, okay, no, the rich need to live here and the poor need to live here because that devalues our homes. We can't live in unity together anymore because we are obsessed with how much we value our house or how much these things are worth. And we don't want to lose that. But in India, there's no zoning at all. You could have a majestic, luxury apartment literally right across the street. There's a slum area where there's a hundred families living in 10 by 10 foot rooms with just a handful of bathrooms between all the hundred families. And you just have to see it. I mean, you, you, can't, you can't hide your eyes to that because you, you have to find the front door of your place. So that's diversity. That's what diversity looks like. Union, unity and diversity. So what would it look like for us to explore our freedom in Christ instead of being led by the law? What are some implications of living in unity? I think it's, it's embracing our wonderful ethnic diversity that God has given us. Our Creator has made each ethnicity and race beautiful. It was His artistry on display. And why not celebrate that? Our Creator glories in the diversity of the human race. People from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation are going to be worshiping side by side with you. So why not start now? Sometimes what's in our focus is rather the flaws in each race or in each nationality, and we highlight those without seeing the beauty in each of them. But now our freedom from the law has allowed us to see the beauty in each one's and to live hand in hand with each other. It also looks like embracing people who love and cherish Christ at, say, the Methodist Church or the Nazarene Church. Oh no. Yes, they might differ on us from some small, minutia biblical doctrine. And yes, we should be devoted to one another in your local church context, but that does not mean that we look down on others who are, a, are part of a faithful, God-glorifying, Christ-dependent, Spirit-empowered church. Because here's a secret. You're soon going to be worshiping around those same followers of Christ. So why are you drawing those lines now? Well, I can't talk to those people because they go to the, you know, they go to the Baptist church and they believe such and such. Well, are, they, are they followers of Christ? Do they, are they justified before him? Are they living by faith? Well, yeah, but I, I, mean, I don't want to be... What? We're all one in Christ. It also looks like pouring our love into the people in a, maybe in a more economically challenged area of town. Let's praise God for our material blessings. Let's not be ashamed of that. Yes, God has given us an abundance of material possessions and a bunch of economic stability. And that's something to praise God for, not to be embarrassed about, something to be grateful for. But at the same time, he has asked us to be a blessing 
to others with it. You've been blessed to be a blessing. Sometimes what happens is that we are fearful of them. Is this the kingdom of God that we become fearful of people? Or know that maybe sometimes we go out of our comfort zone. Sometimes we say, you know what? Our kids don't need the next latest and greatest toy. We can go and give this. We can go and buy toys for some other family. Or we can go spend time with some other people. Another way, it's, it's loving those of the opposite gender for praying for them without making it weird. Sometimes we make it weird. If I pray for that other girl, it's... Uh, no, it's okay. Now, obviously, we must be careful. At the same time, we don't avoid it. We glorify God and how He has united male and female. We recognize the unique roles and responsibilities of each gender and the Spirit-given gifts He has given for both in the church, and we celebrate that. And we live in unity with one another. So we've seen that you are freed from the bondage of the law because you are sons, because you have put on Christ, because you are united in Christ. And finally, you are no longer under the guardian of the law because you are heirs with Christ. You are heirs with Christ. Verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. We have finally now come full circle when we first introduced to Abraham in verse 6. Remember, this is why we're even having this discussion. The false teachers came into Galatia, said if you want to be a part of the blessing that came to Abraham, you need to do what Abraham did, circumcision and following the law and those different elements. So if you want the promise, then you've got to do these things. And Paul blows that up and says, no, the promise came by faith. If you want the promise, place your life in Christ and it's yours. Obedience to the law was never to give the inheritance. It was faith. Notice what it was written there in verse 29. If you are Christ's, it's him who is the fulfillment of the promise. Look to him. Be found in him. Look at him only. Don't look anywhere else. This inheritance is yours only through Christ. doesn't say, well, it might be yours, it will be yours, it could be yours, it probably will be yours. But no, it says you are heirs. It's a present reality. What freedom then from the bondage of the law. So if you want to live thinking, well, I better get my act together so that God would, expect, would accept me, it's going to be a miserable life for you. I can guarantee that it will be miserable. Find your assurance in Christ so that God find your hope in Him. Nothing will take that away. We have freedom to obey and follow Christ through anything because we have that surety that this is ours. So what is this inheritance and why, why are we so interested in it? What, what's the big deal? What is it that you think of when you think of inheritance? When you think of being an heir with Christ? Well, most of us, and most of the time I think of, is our physical inheritance in heaven. Having that mansion prepared for me by Christ, living eternally in the new heavens and the new earth. 
and how glorious that is. But, O oh Christian, that would be a far too small of a view of God's inheritance. Because we get God Himself as our inheritance. We get Him. We just sang three songs about how great our God is. And now we've just heard that we get Him. We get, we get to be with that greatness. Being a people who were once separated since that day in the garden because of our sin and our wretchedness, we had lost our connection to Him. But now through Christ, we have access to the majestic Godhead. He is ours and we are His. Just like the communion that Christ had with the Father and the Spirit before incarnation, that is what we experience if we are Christ's. That's ours. That's our communion. Ephesians 1 tells us that the Spirit is the guarantor of our inheritance. Because we have Him, we know that we are His. And we have been found in Him. So why would we go back to the law when we have been given God Himself? Oh, Christy, that is my prayer for you this morning. It's a prayer for my own life that I would be found in Christ and no longer under the tutor of the law.